Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Thank you for joining us for the Practical Preservation Podcast. We're trying something different today. We're answering your questions, uh, maintenance-related. So I have Jonathan with me, and we're going to answer the questions that were submitted. In my head, I keep thinking, you've got questions, we've got answers, but I think Radio Shack had that trademarked. Most likely. <laughs> so, um, so the first question we have, or the first two, I guess, are related to water inf infiltration. So uh, the one uh, is about filled stone construction, masonry, and water um, influx and mitigation. Um, the, the person that wrote in the question said, we struggle with water influx as a filled stone bank house. Uh, water's running down the mountain, has plenty of spaces to find a way into the house. Uh, and the other question that is, that is related was about plaster flaking off the walls, uh, and typically that's a sign of moisture in the masonry also. So to uh, deal with this, there's several different things that you can do. Um, usually when you see a stone house that's stuccoed on one side, that's because water is has been getting in, um, usually through driven rain. Yep, through the joints. Through the through the masonry joints, and because the masonry is soft, or yeah, the masonry is soft, it the water travels through. So they would stucco to give another barrier. Um, we have done that also in brick houses, but on the inside. So when a when a masonry house is constructed, it's usually just the brick or stone wall, and then the plaster is done right on top of that. Um, but so if you want to stop the water infiltration from getting into your plaster, you can stucco with a type S mortar, which is waterproof, uh, and then plaster on top of that. So that's the, that's how we've dealt with it in a brick house that they didn't want to stucco the outside. Um, but for the water actually coming in either from the groundwater or, um, or not groundwater, but from the outside and wicking up, um, you can do a couple of different drainage systems. Uh, one of them would be like a perimeter, a perimeter drain. It's where you could dig down into the ground right by your house, and you get a PVC pipe with the um, the corrugated the holes in the in it. You can put that down so any water coming coming up can get diverted away from the house. So you start at the highest end or the furthest part. And you have it gradually sloped down. So however you do it, putting stone underneath it, 
to get the angle right. And then pretty much you put uh, the uh, the cloth. It's a cloth for oh, garbage. The, uh, lar the landscape cloth. You put that down and then you put some more, you put crushed stone over it so that it doesn't allow dirt and stuff to get in. But it still allows it to water to seep through and get to the pipes also. Then you can, once you got that couple inches of that, then you can fill it back up with stone or, I'm sorry, dirt. And, you know, grass seed on top or whatever. You just want to keep plants away from it. That that way it doesn't grow up your house. It doesn't keep the moisture close to your house. And the other thing you would do then is also it's landscaping. But near your house, you want it, you want the, the ground to be higher at your house and gently slope away. That'll stop any water that's coming down. It from go, it'll go back up, but it'll also force it back down and out like and away a, from the yeah, house, like a, almost like a trough. The only other way is if you're getting it in your basement is to do um, like a sump pump with the same type of drain around the edge, and that way, if there if it's filling up in the basement, you can then you know pump it out and. You don't have to worry about it. It's all it's all set on an automatic bobber and stuff. So, the other thing that we see often, especially like if you're in a colonial house that has a chair rail, below the chair rail, if you have plaster failing, and it's a masonry building, oftentimes that is from the water coming wicking up from the ground and then getting in so it's not from the driven rain it's not necessarily from the storm water it's just from the moisture so you want to make sure your repointing your pointing is good so there isn't water infiltration and if you're still having problems the type s mortar stucco solution on the interior below the plaster would be a good solution and while you're at it you can stucco underneath the ground too so if you're doing the the outside drain systems and it's just as easy at that point to stucco it and seal that also. Yeah. So the the second question that we received was about um, painting. So and that's a question and discussion that we have oftentimes. So the person actually asked, um, they're refinishing painting old repurposed wood. Um, it's fifty to one hundred years old. They're removing the old paint, stabilizing the existing paint, uh, edge priming and top coating. So I would say. Any paint, whether it's a, any paint job, whether it's historic or new, prep is key. If you don't prep, have, yeah, if prep you, is ninety-five percent of a paint job. No matter what anybody says, that is exactly the truth. Because the the better you prep it, the long you get long longer longevity out of it. You get and it looks like a better job. So it's basically really prep is key for any type of painting or staining or whatever. So you want to, um, in, in a historic building, though, you want to make sure um, you take lead paint into consideration. So any house built before 1978, uh, we just assume has lead paint unless it's been um, uh, removed, um, abated, and or, um, uh, uh, I can't think of what the other word is. Tested. Test it. Um, but, uh, so we just make that assumption. We're very, very careful, you know, around children under six and pregnant women 
uh, and you also though need to take precautions yourself. Although adults can can absorb the lead, not absorb it, but they can their bodies can handle the lead a little bit better. You don't get the developmental issues. And it also <laughs> passes through the body, unlike some other chemicals. Yeah, eventually, if you if you remove the exposure, that your lead levels will go down. Yep. Um, so you want to make sure that if while you're you know following safe lead practices, and there are. Um, um, there are pointers on the EPA website, but you want to make sure that, you know, while you're working with the lead, you know, the clothes that you're wearing, the shoes that you have stay in that area or, you know, you remove them immediately and wash them. Um, you wash your hands and your face before you eat, drink or smoke is what we always tell, tell the people that are stripping for us. Uh, wash your hands. Um, I And face. And face. Um, and that that really does minimize your exposure. And if you if you don't want to worry about your clothes getting contaminated, you can always buy like the overalls, uh, the gloves and the booties and stuff like that. That and then just tape around the areas where they're where you where got there's the seams. Yeah, yeah, like around your wrist, around your ankles, and that'll help keep out any dust from your clothes, so you won't have that contamination coming in and out or from home or wherever you're doing it at. And, and just be really careful where you're tracking it to. Um, there's been two incidents that I've seen in the Lancaster paper where adults have had it on their clothes and weren't taking precautions and then have caused lead poisoning in children. Um, one was uh, Trinity Lutheran steeple. The, the painter was going home and not changing his clothes and their their small child, you know, had lead poisoning. Another was a plain family that were repurposing sash for like craft projects, and the entire family um, had really high le lead levels. So just be be mindful. You know that that's the that's the one thing about the older buildings. Um, I was I did uh, go to a presentation once where the the person did say lead paint saved um, America's woodwork because it didn't require it to be repainted and. And it, it was, it, it, but, you know, then you have the, the, the toxic side effects. So while you're painting or while you're preparing to paint, you want to make sure that your surface is clean, dry, sound, um, that any repairs that need to be made, and that you sand to make it so that something will, will grip to it. Um, you don't have to strip all the paint. You can and um but you don't have to and there's multiple ways that you can you can strip you can you know use chemicals which we're using more and more because of the the lead exposure and it keeps it wet so yeah it keeps wet it, is the key yeah um you can use heat guns um and that you need to wear a respirator when you're when you're using heat among guns. other things yeah and and be careful um that you don't make the wood too hot and um there's sanding. Don't sand. That sanding's probably the worst thing that you can do. Unless you're wet sanding. <clears throat> right. But but sanding in just what? in general, because wet sanding will pull the grain up and and not give you. you there's a lot more uh, prep steps, and the sanding just makes all the lead dust airborne, and it'll it, it make it's a lot more. Um, it's a lot riskier. A, a lot risk, and it's more more damaging to the wood. Um, so. After you've you know gotten yourself down to a sound surface and you're deciding to paint, typically we um, we use um, a good oil-based primer and two uh, two finish coats. Um, you can't buy oil. Well, you can buy oil-based paint. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But the oil-based paint um, 
is very limited in, in America. So we don't use that as much um, anymore. So there are some options though. So if you're painting masonry and the rule of thumb of painting masonry is if it's been painted, paint it. If not, don't paint it. Um, but you wanna make sure you pick something that's uh, breathable. So you wanna pick either a, a mineral paint or um, a lime wash for, for painting your masonry. Um, you can also, for traditional painting, you can um, choose milk paint, and uh, you can use that on your exterior with, with additives, and there's a lot of different milk paint companies now. And then if you're looking for a good oil-based paint, um, you can get two that are out of Europe. Uh, one's Fine Paints of Europe. Uh, it's really touchy, but it's a, it's a good, high-quality, thick paint. Just make sure you read the directions every time on this to understand how it works and follow it to a T. And they're very helpful. If you call into their, their technical helpline, they, they help. Uh, and then there's linseed oil paint. Um, and in North America now, they're recommending adding zinc to it to prevent mildew growth. So uh, we have a gallon of that that I'm going to try out at our house and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have some updates on how that worked. So then... Our um, last question had to do with wood repair and uh, preservation. So typically for wood repair, we have either interior or exterior, we have two options uh, because we're repairing, not replacing. Uh, would either be a solid wood Dutchman, which is just re removing the decayed part with and putting new wood in and then um, in a consolidant and epoxy method. Uh, the Wood Dutchman, I mean, that's pretty much explanatory by what she said. It's literally removing the decayed wood, and the key to that is not making, like, complete squares. You might want to make them octagon or skewed just so that, you know, the grains don't line up making a straight cut across the, a straight grain board. That's if you're staining it or something. In other words, it doesn't really matter as long as you get the grains the right direction and so you're not getting end grains and stuff like that. And you can sand it out and repaint it. Typically, we use um, either a tropical hardwood or um, a salvaged wood, some old growth wood, because the new growth wood uh, will not give you the longevity uh, if, you, if, you want, if you want something that's going to last, a repair that will last. Yeah. And the other one was, what was it? The, the epoxy, um, epoxy and repair consolidant. and consolidant. Now, this is one that everybody wants to fight over because they're not sure about it. Well, there's ways to view it, you know. Yes, it changes the, the, the wood chemicals, especially when you're using the consolidant because it rehardens back up some of the soft decaying stuff. We still remove the, the decayed stuff as much as you can. And if it's kind of soft... But it's still t still there. That's what you use the consolidant for. It'll stop it. It'll basically turn into like a plastic or a stone. And then from there, you can use different types of epoxies. Usually it's a two-part A and B. You mix together. You fill it. And then let it sit and harden. And then you can sand it, you know, shape it, carve it, whatever you want. You can even cut almost all of them you can cut with a circular saw or a jigsaw or whatever. So, And then it's pretty much back to the painting and starting from there. Yeah, typically uh, we do, our rule of thumb is if it's less than 50% uh, 
decayed or gone, we will repair it. Um, if it's more than that, we'll replace the the section. Like if it's on a window, the the mutton or the rail or the style. But the epoxies are a good option for re rebuilding something up. They're 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 machinable and and carvable. So and once it's painted, it's not a good option if you're not painting. But it, once it's painted, it definitely does. Um, you can't tell the difference between that and wood. Uh, there's a lot of different companies and a lot of different um, options for for epoxies now. Um, and I would just say, you know, if you have questions, let us know. But we we tr uh, we have a couple different ones that we use depending on the application, and that's one of the things that I think is important. If you have the experience, then you know what works best in what situation. But just stay away from the automotive epoxies. Oh, yeah. Use the epoxies Those for wood. Those are not good for wood because it's solid and it's made for metal. It's great if you're doing metal windows and trying to restore those but for wood it doesn't flex or and expand and contract with the wood so it'll just crack and i mean within months and pretty much fall out so okay. thank you for joining us for the practical preservation podcast um be sure to be on the lookout for our um practical preservation event uh that we're planning for june 2nd at lancasterhistory.org um those invitations will be coming out shortly um but if you need more if you'd like more information about that please you know let us know thank you Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.